When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily. 100 career goals for Patrick Bamford. The Leeds man on target in a 2-0 Premier League victory over Crystal Palace last night. And is the ex-Chelsea man proving to the Blues that he was worth a chance? For Palace, no Zaha and no points. And not for the first time. Their record without him is terrible. How do they go about winning games in the absence of their talisman in the future? We'll talk about all of that on today's show, as well as the latest on Mike Dean after a rocky week for the referee. Plus Champions League action and FA Cup news to tackle too, with Manchester City, Manchester United and West Ham all on the agenda. I'm Niall McCorn and joining me today on Football Social Daily to go through it all, we've got a man who somehow got accused of being more miserable than me in a recent podcast review. I don't know how he's managed that. Marley Anderson, all right, Marley? Oh, don't remind me of that. I'm just getting over the mental trauma of, uh, of being attacked by a, by a review. Both barrels, I think, is the words to use to describe Both that review. Uh, and we've also got straight talking Stefan Armstrong here too. Hey up, Steph. Now then, I'm, I dare to think what uh, sort of reviews I'd be getting, so anybody listening, don't review. Ignore Stefan, 100% review. We welcome reviews here, um, especially on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review, if you think we're five-star, of course, and leave us a little comment as well. We always like leading, uh, we always like reading out your reviews, and you might even get a shout-out on the next podcast too, if you do leave one, so let us know your thoughts. Um, but if you are really gunning for a negative review today, Stefan, you do get to talk about Crystal Palace, referees, and social media yes. on the podcast, yes. so I bet you're buzzing. My, my, my three favourite subjects, so I'm I'm going to get stuck in. This is a podcast for me. They were actually the choices. If, if Stefan was on Mastermind, it'd be, be between them three topics. <laughs> that and York City from 2000 to 2020. <laughs> As he was pulling out, Nick Pope used to play for York City, the last podcast he was on. So who knows what other knowledge he's got locked away in that brain of his. Um, what about last night then? That's where we're going to start on today's Football Social Daily. Of course, Premier League action, Monday Night Football, and it took place at Ellen Road. Leeds United 2, Crystal Palace nil was the final score and pretty much Leeds had control of the game uh, from the kickoff and that was simply because inside three minutes they were in the lead Jack Harrison giving Marcelo Bielsa's side the perfect start his deflective strike putting the Whites in front after just three minutes Patrick Bamford then sealed all three points a little bit later on in the game uh, early in the second half in fact with his 100th career goal I suppose Marley we were discussing on yesterday's podcast the contrasting styles of play and how we know that Leeds will come at you full bore uh, and if they get their opportunities of which they create plenty they're bound to score a couple of them Um, but it's always going to be tough isn't it for any Premier League side you go behind inside three minutes against the side on their own patch who who are looking more and more confident as the weeks go by it was always going to be a tough ask for Palace after going behind so early yeah um, you know when you've when you've gone into a game and you haven't got your best player it's kind of important to just get through that first 15-20 minutes 
um, and just sort of settle yourself in the game and try and sort of impose yourself from then on, I think, and just, just keep it a bit tight at first. And Palace just completely capitulated within, was it three minutes, and Harrison scores, and obviously it takes a little bit of a deflection, but still, you know, I, I still thought uh, Gaeta might have had a chance at saving it, but um, it flies past him, and, and from then on they've got a, a hell of a sort of task on their hands because they've got to then get used to to Leeds' style. Leeds have got the tails up, they're they're happy, they're you know playing well. Um, they've got threats all over the pitch. I think Leeds, um, you know, Rafinha on one wing is scoring goals, um, providing loads of assists. Harrison on the other, and then you got Bamford, who's one of the top scorers in the league. I think he's got ten or eleven now this season, something like that. So mm. he's. Um, you know you've got a lot to deal with as and then on the counter attack you haven't got the guy who you've been so used to playing with for you know for so long uh, in Wilfred Zaha that you've you've kind of you, you've got a bit of a blunt force and you're trying to go forward with all of a sudden you're trying to score from free kicks and you're not creating much from open play i don't think they they had a proper chance yesterday pal except maybe um Eze's half chance on the pullback from uh, from Batuay's um, when he won the ball back in the corner, mm. but still, it's not a clear cut chance, and that's where Palace are always going to fall apart. I think. Yeah, I mean, you touched upon uh, Eberetzi and Wilfred Zaha just there, but we'll come on to those two players in a second because inevitably the lack of Zaha did affect Crystal Palace as it always seems to do. And as much as it is a cliche, it, it certainly is a cliche because it's true. And we'll talk about that in a sec. But first of all, Patrick Bamford, whose goal did seal the victory in the end for Leeds United against Crystal Palace. As I said just now, Stefan, 100 career goals now for Patrick Bamford. Uh, none of those came in the Premier League for Chelsea. Do you think that they'll regret letting him go? They've had a few errors over the years, haven't they, Chelsea, with the likes of Kevin De Bruyne and Mo Salah, two top world-class players who are on their books uh, and went away from Chelsea and actually ended up achieving greater things um, than had they stayed at Stamford Bridge. So, you know, I don't think this is another example of that personally, but do you think that there may be a little bit of regret in, in seeing uh, Bamford do so well for Leeds United? No, I don't, I don't think there'll be any regret. We're quite used to seeing a lot of ex-Chelsea players moving elsewhere and making a success of themselves. I think Bamford is he's in a different uh, conversation to the likes of um, De Bruyne and, and Salah. They're, they're world-class players. Bamford isn't. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's why he probably didn't make it at Chelsea and he had to find his, his chances elsewhere. And going back to when Bamford was at Chelsea, he, he as you said, he didn't score a single goal for Chelsea. He wasn't, he wasn't prolific at all. He, he had to go into yeah. the lower leagues and work himself back up. He had a disappointing spell. They kept learning spell. him out, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a disappointing spell elsewhere in Premier League as well um, before going to Middlesbrough. So um, I think I think um, Bamford's improved as a player and he's slowly developed into a Premier League player. I still don't think he's he's at a level of um, of, of being in a Champions League side, uh, for example. Yeah, and I think he was sort of coming into into the first team at Chelsea when I think Diego Costa was the was the main striker there, and they might have even signed Didier Drogba back for a season as well. So it was always going to be tough for him to try and break through, particularly considering um, some of the loan spells, as you say, Stefan, were kind of in the lower leagues. He does take a lot of chances to score, though. That's the one thing I will say about Bamford. He did balloon a horrible <laughs> left-footed yeah. effort over the crossbar, which you can see in the highlights. is quite quite comical, actually. But he kept going. He kept endeavouring and managed to finally get his goal. 100 career goals is an excellent effort um, for him. He actually won the Championship Player of the Season when he was on loan from Chelsea at Middlesbrough. Um, and they still never gave him a chance at Stamford Bridge. Now, I understand what Stefan's saying, Marley, when he says about Patrick Bamford is in a different league to Kevin De Bruyne and Salah. He's absolutely spot on with that. But also at the same time, in the last couple of years, mainly under Lampard and now a little bit under Tuchel, we've seen these young Chelsea Academy players come through, the likes of Rhys James and Mason Mount. Um, Tammy Abraham is another player who's also been given a chance through the middle. Is there anything to suggest that had you know that time come a little bit sooner at Chelsea, that Bamford couldn't have made a good fist of things at Stamford Bridge? Um, I think the only time he, he would have ever got a chance is if he was there sort of last season when Lampard came in and had the, the transfer ban. Um but other than that, Chelsea mm. aren't Chelsea aren't bothered bothered about making you know, promoting youth to the first team because they've always had I mean, since Abramovich came in in sort of two thousand and six or whatever it was, they've always had that thing we'll go out and buy someone. Like if, if he's not good enough we'll go out and buy someone else and if if mm. he's not good enough, we'll buy someone else. It was it was Kesman and Crespo at first, and now it's recent years. It's been Alexandra Pato, Esso, um, Marata, Diego Costa. 
you know, they've they've gone through strikers like everyone's gone through hot meals, so they're not. I think half of the people at Chelsea probably forgot Bamford played for them at one point. <laughs> um, he was just simply never going to get a chance. I don't think he ever made a league appearance for them. Um, and for me, like an out an outsider looking in, like he always seemed to score goals wherever he was. I thought, you know, I think he got loaned. I'm uh, just looking at his Wikipedia. He looked, got loaned six times, um, and twice. You know, he got 18 in 37 for MK Dons and 17 in 38 for Middlesbrough. He got 18 21 for Derby. They're all they're all good, good returns. And then he had a, a bad spell at Palace, um, and then Norwich, and then he I think he went on loan to Burnley as well. Apparently, which I've only just found out. But um, yeah, he got none in six for them before a permanent move to Middlesbrough and, and did all right for them. And then. He's banged them in for Leeds, and it's probably just something to do with the style. You know, Leeds create a lot of chances, so you mentioned he does take a few chances to score a goal, but ultimately, if he scores one goal a game, you're more likely than not to win that game. So, you seen that last night. I mean, he he buried one, he missed a couple, but they won 2-0, and it's just the way Leeds play suits him perfectly, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that it must have been important for him, Stefan, to score goals for Leeds in the Premier League this season. And I think what Marley says goes hand in hand with the fact that they do create loads of chances, which naturally means he is more likely to score because he probably would have been feeling in his head with all of those loan moves away from Chelsea and giving it a good go in the Championship and being very good. But when he did eventually get into the Premier League with Middlesbrough and a couple of other clubs like Burnley, he was rubbish, basically. So, I mean, it must be nice for him to feel a little bit more comfortable in the top flight and that he's starting to prove his Premier League credentials. The guy undoubtedly had a point to prove coming back to the Premier League. But to be fair, what an opportunity to to be given. He's never going to probably play in in a better team than this Leeds team in terms of chances created. Um, people, you know, he's getting, he's going to get the ball fed in from Rafina, from from Jack Harrison. He, he's, as you say, he's going to get chances, and as Mali say, as long as he gets one a game, then that's all right, isn't it? And that, that's probably the level that that Bamford's at. Um, he, he's he's starting to take his chance at Leeds United, and it seems to be a good fit for him. And what more can you want, really, if you're Patrick Bamford? This is probably as good as it's going to get, I reckon, for him. You don't reckon there's an England call-up in the offing? Because there's a fair few people talking about it. And it's quite interesting how the landscape changes because six months ago, Danny Ings was a shoo-in for the Euros. Now Southampton just got beat 9-0, lost again at the weekend. No Premier League win in nine. Danny Ings has gone off the boil. And now all of a sudden, Patrick Bamford's in the box seat for a call-up in terms of England strikers. It's funny how things change. Yeah, he's never going to be a main man. He would always be a bit part player. And I think there's... There's seven or eight strikers, uh, English strikers, who, who could do what Bamford would do for England. It kind of reminds me of, uh, if you think about all the England players over the years who who had really, really solid, good club careers, but never really took off for England. And these are great players. I'm talking about uh, the likes of Robbie Fowler. Um, yeah, maybe Teddy Sheringham. Um, Andy Cole. These, these are all people that I would rate higher than Patrick Bamford in, in the history of football. Um, and even even these guys struggle to to, to maintain um, this, this kind of this kind of main man um, profile for England. Um, there's there's always going to be your main players, Wayne Rooney, Harry Kane. You're never going to really be able to dislodge these players because they're world class players. Raheem Sterling is a world class player. You're never going to be able to dislodge them. You're not going to be able to dislodge Marcus Rashford. So uh, it, for me, it kind of it's a bit of a trivial conversation talking about Patrick Bamford playing for England because he will he'll only ever be a stopgap for an England team. Um, so it don't it don't really matter. I know it sounds harsh, but I think I think that's realistic. I think I'm justified in saying that. I think that's fair. The only reason I'm giggling away in the background is because I can just foresee Patrick Bamford scoring a scrappy goal in the quarterfinals of the of the Euros, <laughs> and Stefan saying that he's rubbish and shouldn't play for England. I can just see that happening. That always happens when people say that. But I'll be saying, oh, he's the greatest player ever since David Nugent when he scored for England. Oh, that sort of stuff. New what a legend what the worst possible goal he could have ever scored that. there's no such thing as a bad goal Marley you should know that <laughs> um, I tell you what Crystal Palace would have absolutely killed for a goal last night obviously losing by two goals to nil two leads and they were they were without Wilfred Zaha who limped off at the weekend with hamstring injury and we don't actually know how long specifically he'll be out for but normally with hamstrings they take at least a couple of weeks even if it's just a, a slight strain you don't want to risk it because if you ping it you could be out for a matter of months. Here's a damning statistic for you Marley. Crystal Palace have lost 17 
of their last 19 Premier League games when Wilf Zaha hasn't played, and they failed to score in 15 of those 17 defeats, which to me shows just how talismanic he is. And I've often said on this podcast, sorry Palace fans, it's a real cliche, but without Zaha you look terrible. Um, And you talk about a one-man team, and I know Crystal Palace fans are probably sat listening to this thinking, yeah, there's more to us than Wilfred Zaha. I agree, there is. And from what I've seen in recent weeks, I would would side with that. But the statistics are there in black and white for all to see. It's obvious for everyone to take note that 17 of their last 19 games when he's not played, they've lost. So, I mean, it just goes to show how important he truly is to that club. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like sometimes, you know, saying without Zaha, you know, Palace are rubbish or Palace don't win without him. But, you know, Crystal Palace fans probably do think that, oh, you know, everyone doesn't doesn't watch us every week. Nobody bloody wants to watch you every week when you haven't got Zaha, I'm sorry. But it's absolutely awful football team without him. Really are. Like, there's just nothing to them. They're just, they look old. They look lacking energy and it's probably I think they've got the highest um, average age in the Premier League and I think it shows you take Eze out of that team for example and everyone else is I think the next youngest person is about 27 and it's kind of like you know you've got um, Gary Cahill you've got Scott Dan Gaiter in goals 34 I think he is Milivievic is well he's not quick anyway so he doesn't give you any energy there's nothing there's nothing that scares you about Crystal Palace when they haven't got Zaha um, you know, they, some of the fans talk about Eze being, you know, their new hope. I think Eze is the most overrated player in the Premier League. I think he's so far overrated because he scored a couple of good goals and fair play to him. He scored some great goals at the start of the season, especially that one. I can't remember it was against where he just dribbled past everyone and he looked like a world beater. Since then, he's done nothing. He's just he's there's nothing there. He doesn't take games like Zahar does. Zahar is like a constant threat for 90 minutes. He will beat someone. He will win a free kick. He'll get you off the pitch. He'll score you a goal. Um, he'll lay on an assist for someone like Benteke um, or whoever's playing up front that week. And yeah, they're just there's nothing to Crystal Palace. I don't think that they're, they're not the hardest to beat unless you you make a mistake. And Obviously, coming from a Newcastle fan whose team made two mistakes against them a couple of weeks ago, it probably sounds a bit rich, but still, like that game, they were dominated by us for that game. So even watching them over the ninety minutes, they were they were poor and they defended and they used their experience to just sit in and and um, and sort of frustrate Newcastle a bit. Mm. And it was, you know, that that style of um, football is not going to work when somebody's playing against you like Leeds, who've got loads of energy, runners everywhere, free f- like fluid sort of movement, um, wingers that will attack you constantly, um, and boundless, boundless energy. And I think you've seen that last night when there was a clip, 92 minutes, um, literally about 30, 40 seconds to go in the game, um, and Palace had a... Well, it was a counter-attack, but they were still in their own half. Um, I think one of the midfielders was bringing it away and there was four Leeds players behind him sprinting, running towards their own goal to try and get the ball back off him. And it was just it just summed up Leeds' um, attitude to everything compared to you know, Crystal Palace just like meandering along trying to get a... thinking he's got time on the ball and there was four guys after him and they ended up winning the ball back pretty quickly. And it just sort of summed up the entire... Not just the game, but the way the clubs play. And I think until Palace get someone in, manager-wise, that can uh, give them some new, fresh impetus, I think they're, they're going absolutely nowhere. They're going to finish where they do every year, 14th, maybe 13th, and just carry on, not having a go at anyone, um, mm. not sort of thinking, can we get into that top 10 and, and bring some more money into the club? I think they're just happy doing what they're doing, and they're still burned from the... Uh, from trying to go from Sam Allardyce to Frank De Boer a few years ago and uh, wondering why it didn't work. I think that's a good point that you make there. And Callum's actually said this a couple of times on Football Social Daily in recent weeks and months, that there's always a risk, though, when you do try and expand and change managers, like the Frank De Boer risk that you just outlined. But also, if you think about what happened to Stoke, where they changed from Tony Pulis and then started signing players like Boyan uh, (laughs) and Shaqiri to try and change up their style of play. They ended up getting relegated to the championship and they've been knocking around in the bottom half ever since and they've never come back, absolutely. It's more interesting though, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's that that classic and it's that catch-22 situation, do you stick or twist? Loads of teams are like that as well. Risk versus reward, isn't it? But if, if, If you're Steve Parrish, like... 
Surely you got to grow some balls a little bit here and just have, have a go at the Premier League. Like, I mean, it must it must be great for him financially to be able to sit there and you know always always be able to invite his friends to the to the board to watch a Premier League game year after year after year, whether draw it. But come on, man, just like sign somebody. I see what you mean, but their wages are astronomical for a club that size. And I mean, for me, that would concern me if I was a Crystal Palace fan. If I was an Eagles fan, I'd be concerned about the wages that that they pay their players. Secondly, in the current climate financially, I don't think that Crystal Palace, you know, if they were cautious to take any risks before, you know, you can double down on that now because there's no way that with the pandemic and with the finances being restricted that that they're going to be taking any risks and spending money on big players, which kind of leads me back to the whole Wilfred Zaha thing. Marley said that he feels that Eze is extremely overrated. However, back in the day when Wilfred Zaha was first at Palace before he got sold to Manchester United, he did show signs of promise, much like Eze has shown signs of promise. But it's only since he's gone back to Crystal Palace uh, and in the last three or four years that Wilfred Zaha's really kind of exploded into the player that he is now and the player that's so important for Crystal Palace. We know that Zaha's wanted to leave Crystal Palace for a while now. He's handed in a number of transfer requests amidst uh, amidst uh, interest from Everton and Arsenal. So if Zaha does leave Steph, do they have to replace him? Do they have to go into the market like what you've said, go and sign somebody? Or are they trying to kind of already do that with Eze? Uh, Do you think that they're kind of using Eze as this almost heir to Wilfred Zaha if he does decide to move on? Yeah, they're definitely kind of shaping him as an heir, but the problem remains that he's he's not good enough um, and, and that'll be found out. Say say next season, if, if Zaha does go to an Arsenal or Everton or somebody like that, um, and Eze is given that prominence in the team, that, that team will get relegated if, if other things don't change. Palace probably, on get, get some money for Zaha if you can. Um, I don't know what his contract situation's like, but if, if he's got a few years left on him, get some money for him and use that as a rebuilding project. Get a new manager in, somebody somebody who's young, somebody who wants to somebody who wants to have a go at it. You know what I mean? I'd love to see somebody like Eddie Howe at Crystal Palace instead of Roy Hodgson and give him give him 50, 60, 70 million to, to try and shape a bit of a team or something and then have a go at it rather than... <laughs> Rather than just keeping things yeah. as they are, having the likes of Andros Townsend, all these players who are just kind of <laughs> sitting about for the end of their careers, you know what I mean? Just like I ship them out, get 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 a bit of rebuilding going, and have a go at it. Don't don't just keep the thing the same and have Eze as your 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 budget replacement Zaha, yeah. and it and don't work, and you go down anyway. I know what you mean, and I think it's a really fascinating conundrum, Crystal Palace. I know you don't like talking about them, Stefan, but in my <laughs> opinion, they're a small club, one of the smallest in the Premier League. They've never won a major trophy in their history, which is over 100 years of football club being in existence, and I think they're overachieving. I think they're punching being in the Premier League in general, to be perfectly honest. Do you know when you're a kid and you had the, um, the sticker book collection, um, and you could get all the club crests, and they were on a shiny background, Uh <laughs> Crystal Palace, I, I, would, I used to stick them on my bed, on my bed frame. And Crystal Palace was always grouped together with the likes of Oxford United, Swindon, Norwich, these types of teams. So that, that's where Crystal Palace are for me. I don't know why, but I've just imagined a, a sticker of Gabor Kirai overlooking you as you go to sleep as a young boy. <laughs> that says more about you than me. Stephen used to sleep in, uh, in joggers in tribute to Gabor Kirai. <laughs> used to sleep in joggers. Goodness me. Uh, Leeds United 2, Crystal Palace nil. final score at Ellen Road last night. I think it's an appropriate time to take a break here on Football Social Daily. We'll stop talking about shinies and swapsies and we'll talk about refereeing next. We'll do it after this. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast from Sport Social. Hit the subscribe button and that way you won't ever miss another episode every single day right throughout the Premier League season. That includes weekends uh, where we do previews and review shows too. So make sure you hit subscribe, as I say, and that way you won't miss a beat. Time to talk refereeing now and it's been a hot topic across the Premier League over the weekend and the weekend before that because there's been plenty of decisions made that have turned a few heads and raised a few eyebrows. That's for certain. One referee who's been in the spotlight 
spotlight has been Mike Dean. And a lot of people would say that Mike Dean quite enjoys having the spotlight shone on him. But actually, after the recent overturning of Thomas Socek's red card, of which he got sent off by Mike Dean after watching a few replays for an elbow on Alexander Mitrovic or a perceived elbow in the recent West Ham versus Fulham game, Dean has asked not to referee any games in the near future, starting with this weekend, after he and his family got death threats because of that decision to send off Thomas Socek. Now, the first thing we need to say here on Football Social Daily is we totally condemn any sort of behaviour like that. Um, We don't condone it. It's wrong. It needs to stop. We can criticise Mike Dean professionally and in a work capacity, but it goes without saying that personal attacks on someone just doing their job and their family go too far. So on that front, we know that the decision to send off Socek was wrong. We've spoken about it being overturned. Um, It was a peculiar situation. It's not the first high-profile mistake that Mike Dean has made in recent weeks. There's also been conversations, Marley, about referees coming out and doing interviews after the game, explaining the decisions that they've made to make it easier for the fans to understand, for managers and players to understand, and to ease the frustrations from those watching on that just can't get to grips with the decision that's been made. However... When referees do come out and become a a bit of a public persona and this sort of thing happens, they get abused or people accuse them of trying to hog the limelight like they already do with Mike Dean. Uh, Are things like this the reason why referees can't give interviews or why they kind of restrict referees from giving interviews? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things that winds me up no end um, about, well, football in, in general is when people clamour for referees to do interviews and it would it would prove nothing absolutely nothing at all if you got a referee let's say let's say Mike Dean in this this example and he came out and said and got interviewed by a guy who thinks um you know obviously he's getting interviewed because he thinks he's got a a decision wrong you're never going to interview a a referee after a game when he's had a good game because that's just not how how it would work, um, let's be honest. So we're, we're all of a sudden we're saying, you know, what, what about that decision where you sent off Thomas Socek? Um, everyone thinks that you've got it wrong. Um, what are your thoughts on it? He's simply, all he's going to say is, at the time, there was a raised elbow, um, and under the laws of the game, that is a red card. And it's gonna, it's still going to annoy everyone because everyone still thinks it wasn't a red card. He's not going to give you anything new. He's going to say, I judged it at the time, I seen the replays, and I I interpret the laws of the game as that to be a red card. He's not going to... No one's ever going to come out and say, oh, I got that wrong. Um, I've had a stinker, yeah. Yeah, mm. I've, had a, I've had a shocking game there. Um, and it's still going to lead to more... Um, maybe not direct abuse, but more... Um, you know, bad feeling towards that referee because they're, they're going to put themselves in the limelight and people are going to go, what a prick. Well, he's got that wrong. He should never referee referee a game again. The referees in England are the worst in the, in the in Europe. It's an absolute joke. Um, yep. And it's, it's just not going to solve anything. Yeah, even some stuff as trivial as Mike Dean comes out with a Scouse accent, even though he's a Tranmere Rovers supporter and lives on the Wirral, people are going to say, oh, he shouldn't be allowed to referee Liverpool games. He's got a Scouse accent. He's clearly a Scouser. He's clearly a Liverpool fan. It just opens a huge can of worms yeah. and probably opens up these people to more abuse. Yeah, 100%. And now as well, you know, look at the world we live in now. Everyone goes on about mental health um, and you've got, to, you've got to be nice to everyone. You know, you can't say anything bad about anyone. Um, otherwise, you know, it could lead to them having years of, of trauma and PTSD and all this all this stuff. Um, and you, you, on the other hand, you want players, you want referees coming out and facing, you know, thousands of people that think they've got that wrong. Can you imagine the impact that would have on someone's mental health if you... If you had to do an interview where everybody thinks you're an absolute knob because you've got a question wrong and you're the most useless man ever and it's the end of the world because you've sent off Thomas Socek, that's realistically happened in the 91st minute of a game, didn't affect the result, didn't affect the performance and got overturned less than 48 hours later, really not that big a deal. It's just it's just a game. It's just a decision that got overturned. Fine, it sort of concreted that he got it wrong in the first place, but no harm, no foul, I don't think. So... All of a sudden, you want to put someone out there um, in in to face, you know, reporters, pe- um, pundits, people in the media, fans. Who, let's be honest, football fans are some of the thickest people going. Let's be honest, like the in terms of reactionary people, football fans, a lot of them can be the worst people you could ever think of. 
and you know we're all football fans and we all we all love the game as much as anyone else but you know the difference is between normal people they won't send a death threat to Mike uh, to Mike Ashley <laughs> uh, maybe you would to Mike Ashley but to Mike Dean but everybody else would um, you know there's a lot of people out there that, that would and it's led to this Mike Dean thing of can I not referee uh, a game this weekend because I'm getting death threats to my family it's just absolutely ridiculous yeah I mean it, when you break it down into layman's terms that someone's thought it was appropriate to threaten Mike Dean's life because of a 91st minute mistake that he made which has been overturned it is absolutely perplexing uh, to say the least but obviously back in the day Stefan when there was no VAR and I say back in the day like it was ages ago but it was only a couple of seasons ago although it feels like forever since we've had VAR in the game that decision uh, would have been overturned and you know because there wasn't 20 replays for Mike Dean to look at it, you know, it makes it more understandable that he's made a mistake and the assistant referee might have said, oh, I've seen an elbow there and it could have just been human error. But do you think with the introduction of technology into the game now, there is more cause for referees or at least the VAR conversation to be overheard like we see in other sports like rugby and cricket? Um, there's been this viral clip going around about Australian, um, the Australian Soccer League as well, uh, the A-League. Um, and referees' discussions being heard there. That's actually not true. Um, that was brought out after in a bit of post-match punditry. Um, so during the game, uh, the audience didn't actually hear what was going on. That was kind of a, a bit of a, a myth that I wanted to debunk there. But do you generally, generally think that with the introduction of technology, there is more reason to say, OK, we need to hear what these referees are talking about? To be fair, it's... You know, on like a Saturday or Sunday when you you might dip into the Six Nations, I'm not really that interested in rugby. But when I'm hearing the referee talk on the pitch, that's the most interesting part of the game for me. So it it it'd be quite mm. it'd be quite nice to hear that in football. But let's be honest, I, I don't think it will make any difference whatsoever. It's at the end of the day, it's about the decisions. And if I was a if I was the Premier League referee right now, I'd I'd feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. I would feel let down by uh, the footballing authorities, I'd be felt. I'd feel let down by the the processes of VAR because um, it's referees being refereed by another referee. Um, There's it, it's almost like football bureaucracy. Um, it makes it almost impossible for them to make a decision, for them to do a job. Everything they do is is uh, is is looked at and then looked at and then looked at again. Um, it's it all goes down to the fundamentals of of using technology in football um for clear cut decisions um for, for just all these problems there's how how to say it, it just it just shows how subjective football is um and even even this most simple of rules um can be interpreted in different ways and that, that that's what refereeing is and as soon as you bring in VAR to look at every single last detail rather than just the clear cut ones I'm talking offsides I'm talking obvious red cards where something has gone majorly wrong uh, goal line decisions that's useful for a referee but looking at something which could be seen in one way or could be seen in another way isn't useful for a referee and we have to watch it for 20-25 minutes after a game two old pundits talking about the same decision and one of them has one opinion on it and the other one has another opinion on it so it's it's a subjective game so why why give it such a such a um why 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 put such a bdi on it um just just let a referee do what a referee does and if they get it wrong they get it wrong they come out and they apologize afterwards and that's how it used to be and that was all right um and now mm. it's not so if i was a referee i would be looking at the refereeing authorities, I'd be looking at the FA, I'd be looking at FIFA, UEFA, I'd be saying, you're putting us in this situation. It's not necessarily the fans, it's not necessarily the players uh, of a situation of the game. It's it's your authorities, you're making this difficult for us. Um, and I, I wouldn't really be bothered with it. If yeah. I was Mike Dean, I would just get onto the terraces at Tramnia Rovers when I can, and I'd be behind the goals and I'd be chanting uh, like he loves to do. So I feel sorry for him, to be fair. Yeah, it's not nice what's happened to Mike Dean and football is only a game at the end of the day. And I can't believe I'm even saying that on this podcast because I know it is some people's livelihoods like 
ours and it's also some people's lives you know that's what they live for to watch the football team but it is just a game you know when you're sending death threats to someone really that's sad and we've seen a lot of racial abuse and stuff as well in recent times and I think social media has got a lot to answer for because you know it's not like these fans have got Mike Dean's home address and they can send him a letter you know it's all being done uh, digitally there's absolutely no doubt about that so anyway Mike Dean's asked not to referee any games for a bit after those death threats he got um, hopefully we see him back on the field refereeing soon time to turn our attentions now to a little bit of Champions League news involving Manchester City their knockout game with Borussia Mönchengladbach has been moved to the Pushkash Arena in Budapest in Hungary due to a coronavirus ban in Germany um, what are your thoughts on this move Stefan do you think it makes a little bit of a mockery of the Champions League or just for this season only and hopefully no longer it's just about adapting and getting the games played yeah fully about adapting and getting games played i don't i don't understand why um there's still two legs in the champions league because there's there's a pile up of fixtures um it, it seems like there's non-stop football at the minute i think most clubs would have accepted uh playing in a neutral venue and just having it as a one-off game it worked quite well when they did the kind of the, the finals thing um last last season in portugal so yeah, it's just, it's just adapting. Um, when there's no fans there, what what does it matter um, where where you play? Um, as long as long as it's neutral. But so the the only disappointing thing about it is, I think uh, there'll there'll be one home tie. So um, Munchen Glachbach obviously not playing at home, but they'll have to play away. So that's maybe not very fair. But it's just getting on with it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that, Marley. Does the neutral venue thing matter? Does two legs really matter now that there's no fans? Can they just get away with? one leg because as Stefan rightly says the return leg will be played in Manchester yeah I think um, I think the one leg thing would have worked I think last year I think it led to some really good games when they had um, the quick sort of they almost it was like a camp wasn't it you know almost like a world cup when everyone went to the same country and um, played games pretty quickly and it was one leg nice little sort of shootout type of thing but um, obviously the situation is slightly different this year and you know some, some countries are allowing people in and the Germans have just went absolutely not, no no one's getting in to play uh, a game of football so Mönchengladbach can go to Hungary and, and play there um, it is probably a slight disadvantage that um, one one game is, is at the Etihad and one is at an, a, a, a stadium that nobody knows, um, so it's completely neutral I think if you're going to have a neutral stadium I think UEFA support both teams um Agreeing to play over one leg as well, I think they've they've got that flexibility, um, and they've said that in the rules. But obviously, you know, while um, Man City can get two legs, they're probably thinking it's better for us um, if we have the two legs because everyone else is doing two legs. I don't think anybody's took up that option yet of have of playing over one leg. But um, I think that that would be something that would have to come from UEFA and say everyone plays over one leg, and I'd, I'd be in favour of that. But you know, it it is what it is. No one's got any fans anyway. Um, doesn't matter where you play in the rule in in the world, especially Crystal Palace. <laughs> yeah, make everyone play at Selhurst Park on a windy Tuesday. See, see who's the real champions of Europe. Um, yeah, that'll separate the men from the boys, won't <laughs> yeah. it? For sure. Yeah, send the them cheerleaders in. They still let them cheerleaders. Yeah, send them in as well. Um, it's it's yeah. You know, no one's got fans. Anywhere, it doesn't matter where you play, no one's going to have fans watching them, so it's not a massive, massive advantage, but it is still some advantage to Man City um, that they can play at least one of their legs on a pitch they know and, you know, in the familiar surroundings kind of thing. But like Stefan said, I think it it, it is just about getting it done um, and adapting to the situation. Nothing's perfect um, in the world right now um, with this whole uh, stuff going on and especially how it affects football. Um, so I think it's just adapting to the situation and getting it done. And if you're mm. a club who said, you know, if you know we'd have won the Champions League, if everything was as it was, I think you're, you're dreaming a little bit because everyone's got to adapt. Everyone's in the same boat. You've you've got to prove yourself in different circumstances. So. Um, get on with it basically talking of adapting to the situation that's what's happened in the FA Cup where replays have been scrapped for this season and also extra time in the early rounds were scrapped and games were going straight to penalties but there is a big fixture between two Premier League sides in the FA Cup taking place tonight and we'll talk about it next here on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk 
Hear the latest Premier League news for your team. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. I'm Niall Marley and Stefan with me. Time to talk about two Premier League sides in FA Cup action tonight. Fifth round, Manchester United versus West Ham United at Old Trafford. David Moyes returning to, I was going to call it his old stomping ground, Stefan, but it certainly doesn't feel quite like that. Um, But he has fired shots, the West Ham manager, about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the current United boss, getting time in the Old Trafford hot seat and himself not getting time when he was in charge of United circa 2013. I guess the question is, and this is what's being debated by some Manchester United fans on social media, did he deserve time when he was the manager of Manchester United? Or do you think that whatever he did after Sir Alex left was kind of doomed for failure? Yeah, both. He deserved time. Um, but he, him and his advisors should have known that he wasn't going to get any time. You, you've got a Man United who have become the most successful club, you could argue, in the world, but definitely in Britain, potentially in Europe as well, um, both on and off the pitch. Um, he used to win in everything all the time. So you knew if you are going to go there and things didn't work out immediately, and they weren't going to because Sir Alex was going to leave, uh, you knew you weren't going to get the time. So probably it, it's it's a job you can't turn down. Um, but the worst ever time to be a Man United manager. After a dynasty is the worst time to be any manager of any club. So, yeah, he, he got all the time he, he kind of should have expected to get. Um, it's it's interesting because I'd quite like to see what Man United would be now. A, if he had stayed on and things uh, started to get moving and he got a bit of success. Or B, if he came into the Man United job now, um, after Manu kind of dropped down to a, a wannabe Champions League side, let's be honest. So it's unfortunate in his career. Um, let's just let's just say that. Eh? Uh, in terms of West Ham, we mentioned Thomas Sauchek earlier on, Marley. He's going to be available after that red card was overturned. I mean, he scored eight goals from midfield this season for West Ham United. Um, the highest scoring midfielder for West Ham since Dimitri Payet was at the club. So how useful Jeez. for David Moyes? Is it to have a goal-scoring midfielder like that? How useful is it for any side to have someone who can chip in with goals from midfield like that? Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Um, he's he got a weird knack of scoring um, from from midfield. I don't know how many players can even sort of stack up to him Premier League wide. I think there's players like Gundogan and things like that who play slightly more advanced than him that get more goals. And but from a defensive midfield, I think he plays alongside Declan Rice as sort of a um, slightly more box to box than Rice, but certainly you know a, a much deeper position. Um, and you know people have compared him to Fellaini because he's tall and he scores goals. And as as lazy as that may be, there is some some um, some truth to that, I suppose, because he's got the license to go forward. He's he's got a great shot on him. You can see him um, his goal a couple of weeks ago. I think it was against Aston Villa where he uh, he slapped one in, and it was like a, a striker's finish. It was brilliant. Like it wasn't a a header in a crowded box type of thing where he used his physicality. It was a proper good um, technique on his strike and everything like that. He took it like a, a guy in, in the sort of vein of form that he is. So he's um, he looks like a top player. I think he, he cost a fair a fair bit of money, I think. But still, he's, he's paid it off. Um, and he's doing he's doing pretty well because he's, uh, he's sort of a talisman for, for West Ham now. Teams are, say, teams are coming and playing West Ham and think we've got to think about Sochek. We can't just think about Antonio um and Lingard and Bowen and, and the the obvious ones like that. We've got to we've got to stop this big Czech fella coming through from midfield and powering through um from free kicks and set pieces and things like that. So he's um he's a top top player. He looks really good and Moyes, you know, as we know, Moyes loves a big powerful midfielder that can grab him a goal. Um he got the best out of Fellaini at Everton all them years ago. Ended mm. up turning him into a thirty Five forty million pound player who went to uh, to Man United and that he signed him. Though. That ended how it is. <laughs> yeah, he did sign him. Just he, t- he turned him into a thirty five million pound player that he paid for. <laughs> so <laughs> hey, he still went. The check was still written for that for that uh, very true that amount of money. Either way, he convinced the board to pay that much for him, which is the important thing. But you know, he's he's quality player and he, he's become a real sort of talisman for West Ham. Like I said and. Long way it continue because I love watching him play. I think he's great. 
Well, David Moyes at Manchester United uh, didn't win any trophies. Uh, Louis van Gaal did. Jose Mourinho did. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't yet, Stefan. And now that the title race uh, has gone wrong, I suppose you could say, for United, some might say they were never in it in the first place. But do you think they should focus on silverware? Because I think they'll finish in the Champions League places. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer says that United have a great relationship with the FA Cup through their history, which is true. And he also says that the true sign of a good team is to go all the way in a competition and win a final. Obviously, they got to three semi-finals last year and lost them all. So <laughs> do you think that the FA Cup should be a real matter of concentration for Manchester United from now on? He's just mugged himself off by saying that's the sign of a good team. Because all, all season long he's been talking about the sign of a good team as development and, and slowly slowly becoming championship contenders and all that sort of stuff in his weird Norwegian mank accent. So uh, I'm surprised he said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, they're not going to win the Premier League. Um, and as you say, they're... they're You'd feel pretty confident of them getting a top four finish. I think I think they will finish second, um, main, mainly because other teams keep slipping up. Um, but Man U, uh, Man U have got this knack of not really doing it um, in cup competitions over the last few years. Apart from Jose Mourinho's Europa League, um, the, the way they the way they went out of the FA Cup last season. Last season it was there to win. Um, I just. I'm just never sure about Man United doing it. Um, and ton- I think they'll go through tonight. West Ham never win at Old Trafford. But Man U will find a way of losing in the semi-final and they won't win the FA Cup. Uh, they'll, they'll find a way to do it. And that's kind of a little bit typical of the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer blueprint, I think. Um, progress, but not quite. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will know that there's that spectre of semi-final defeats hanging over him. And is it just a matter of breaking a bit of a watershed, Steph? I know you say you don't really foresee it, but let's just say that Manchester United do get to the FA Cup final or a semi-final and they get through to the final and they win it. Um, is that kind of the, the the glass ceiling moment for Manchester United where now, OK, they've got their swagger back, they've got their mojo back? Because I think there's an interesting debate to be had on the whole as to Manchester United fans saying, ah, well, we are overachieving this season. But they're Manchester United. They're one of the most successful clubs in English football history. And, you know, the fact that they didn't fancy themselves in a title race now that they've lost a couple of games and drawn a couple of games. Um, oh, we're doing better than we were expecting. We were expecting to finish third or fourth this season. It's like that as soon as they lost a couple of games, they were giving themselves a bit of an excuse as to why. And you can understand why, because there's a bit of a regeneration project going on there. But do you think actually winning a trophy and those players getting their hands on on a cup will kind of break any sort of concerns or anxieties about it? Yeah, probably. If... It's it's almost a little bit like the the Jose Mourinho getting in your first season, win a league cup, and then and then move on from there. Um, that confidence of winning a trophy must must do something. Uh, whether it's probably it's probably just getting used to winning. That's what it is. And where I think Man United differ potentially to the likes of see when Arsenal won the FA Cup. It felt like Arsenal won the FA Cup and that was a massive achievement for Arsenal to win the FA Cup and, and that was their potential fulfilled. Um, that was all they were going to win. I think if Man United were to go and win a, a League Cup or an FA Cup, um, it probably would serve as a stepping stone simply because of their history, uh, a bit of confidence and um, potential investment that might be coming in over the next few seasons. So yeah, it, pro- it probably would be a stepping stone for them. What about West Ham, Marley? Um, Stefan says that they rarely ever win at Old Trafford, but we, we, know, we said that um, about Manchester City, that they never win at Anfield and they went and beat Liverpool 4-1 the other day. I'm not saying that's going to happen um, here in the FA Cup, but certainly as a side who haven't won silverware for a while, the last FA Cup final was 2006, where Steven Gerrard dragged Liverpool through it and ended up winning them the game. Do you think West Ham can see the FA Cup as a chance for rare silverware, or at least a a rare foray into the later stages of the competition, maybe even get to another final? Uh, They've got two, to be honest. I think you can't get this far in the competition without thinking, you know, how far can we go in this? I think sometimes you look at teams um, who might be focusing on other things, um, getting far in cup competitions and it being a distraction. I think that's not the case for West Ham. Um, If you looked at someone, let's say... 
uh, let's say Brighton were in this this situation or someone like that, you would think you know they're they're just gonna try and survive in the Premier League and and get a bit more steady before they start thinking about cup competitions and maybe they won't take this uh, as seriously because they don't think they can win the competition. But West Ham, as much as they're probably the, the well one of the outsiders to win it. They've got far. They're, I think they're fifth in the Premier League right now. I think they're a point behind Liverpool in fourth. So they're not sort of... This isn't a fluke after 23, 24 games. You know, they're there mm. on merit. They've obviously built a good team. They're solid. They're scoring goals. They're getting goals from everywhere. Um, like we said, with Socek and Lingard scoring recently, even though he's not playing tonight, I don't think. Um, I think his, uh, his loan spell doesn't allow him to play in the FA Cup, doesn't it, against Man United. But... Fine. Um, they've still got plenty of threats, um, and they're still looking a decent side. So they have to dream. I think football's about um, winning things, and and fans dreaming of of um, winning competitions. So if you get this far in one, I know we're only at the sort of fifth. Is it fifth round tonight? Yeah, yeah, fifth round. So still, like I know we're not exactly in the last four or the last eight, but still, you know, a lot of teams, a lot of decent teams have gone out of this competition already. Um, and the it's it's not um, it's not like a tournament tree type of thing. You can see it's a random draw every everything every um, round. So you could ge- you could easily get some winnable games to get you to a semi final, and you've got to take them chances when they come because they don't come that often. Um, so when you're in a position to really attack a game like West Ham are tonight, then you've got to do it. Okay, Manchester United versus West Ham in the FA Cup this evening. Two Premier League sides doing battle. Burnley are also in action against a former Premier League side, AFC Bournemouth. But we won't talk about that. I'm sure we'll probably gloss over that tomorrow regarding uh, the results of that fixture. Um, but that's it for today's Football Social Daily. Thanks very much, Marley. Thank you, Stefan. What was the last trophy you both won, incidentally? Just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Clubman of the year was that was that, clubman of the year. That that's what you get for like painting fences <laughs> and fixing the advertising hoardings <laughs> at a non-league ground, isn't it? It's 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 what you get for turning up to training, but maybe not playing. <laughs> it's paying your subs every week, <laughs> spending money behind the bar. <laughs> Love it. What about you, Marley? Anything to show off? Anything to brag? What you mean, like individually? It's anything, any trophy. It could be on the Xbox if you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, individually, I'm uh, I'm still Mallorca Killer Pool champion from 2016, and no one's beat me since because I've not been back. So there oh, you go. Oh, very Bravo. good, very. Don't good. mean to Bravo. brag, guys. You know. But... <laughs> if anyone out there is also a Mallorca Killer Pool champion that can cha- challenge Marley to a. <laughs> <laughs> to, a, to a super cup of killer pool then let us know at sports at the sports social on twitter at sports social official on instagram you can also check us out on facebook as well just tap into the sport into the search bar sports social and you'll find us there also hit subscribe that way you'll never miss another episode again and go and check out our website sport-social.co.uk but for today's episode that's it and we'll catch you again tomorrow on football social daily football social daily from sports social Find us on Twitter at The Sports Social. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.